Thank you for coming to the lecture this evening. Um, what we are doing is, is that we've, this is the third in a series of four lectures we've had on uncertainty in its role in decision making. And I hope you enjoy tonight's lecture. What we've been trying to do is try to give a wide spectrum of the, the way uncertainty is looked at as in, in terms of its role in uncertainty, uh, in decision making. And what we've had is, is that you can see by the sheet that I've handed out that we've had the previous two lectures have been on uh, looking at uncertainty in the, in the context of the UK energy policy and energy sector. <clears throat> we've had one, it's been a talk on a view from the, of, about the role of uncertainty in decision making from the environmental social science perspective. Tonight, and, and, and we will have one next week which will be on an uncertain climate which is dealing more with the communication and the way that uncertainty is communicated, uh, is, is used in communication, but particularly dealing with the climate issue. But tonight we have what we thought would be a really interesting lecture, and I, I know we, Angela will be doing so, and it's related to uncertainty, risk, and decision-making in the medical care. What should patients and clinicians make of it? And this uh, we thought would be quite interesting because I've, I've dealt with and, and had an opportunity to listen to how uncertainty is dealt with in a number of sectors, and I think medica, the medical sector has a really inspiring message for some of us. And I've, I'm, I'm looking forward to this lecture this evening. Angela is uh, with the Department of Public Health at the University of Oxford and, inf and uh, Informed Medical Decision Foundation in Boston. And I'm not going to introduce her anymore, but as she says, you can read her um, abstract there. And I, I really think you've come to hear her and not me. So I'm going to pass over to Angela, and I look forward to your lecture. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, and I'm delighted to be uh, back giving a, a lecture in Green College, which I, I became a Dole Research Fellow, I think it was nearly 30 years ago, which is a really terrifying thought. Um, anyway, as, as you heard, my topic is um, uncertainty, risk and decision-making in medical care. Um, and in preparing this lecture, I've drawn obviously on research that I've done, but also very much the work that my colleagues have done, particularly my American colleagues in the Informed Medical Decisions Foundation. Um, and I'm going to cover four things. Um, first of all, medical practice variations, what they are and what might be responsible for them. Uh, talk a little bit about medical decision-making and its complexity. Um, then talk about responses to that um, and particularly focusing on work that's um, being done to help patients make informed choices about uh, treatments. And finally, uh, just a word or two on policy implications. Um, this field, um, the, the person who's really credited with kicking off this field is um, a remarkable doctor called J. Allison Glover who I think he was a rheumatologist, but he um, went to work in what was then the Ministry of Health um, and got interested in uh, school health, children's health, and in particular in tonsillectomy. And he mapped the rates at which tonsillectomy was being carried out around uh, England and found to his astonishment that there was tenfold variation in tonsillectomy rates. Uh, there was nil, no agreement on when tonsillectomy was indicated, and this didn't appear to be related in any way to any measure of morbidity. And another fascinating fact about tonsillectomy was that it was much more common among P 
pupils in private schools. Um, and indeed, uh, he went and looked at um, uh, a particularly well-known public school and found that um, among the 11 or 12-year-olds, whatever age they were when they were going, um, at more than half had already had their tonsils out. And by the time they'd been there about three years, virtually everybody had had their tonsils out. Um, and he, as, as it says on the slide, couldn't explain this. It defies any explanation save that of variations of medical opinion on the indications for operation. Now, the baton was picked up um, some years later by John Wenberg um, in the States. He was um, a public health doctor and epidemiologist who mapped, systematically mapped, small area variations in uh, common procedures uh, around the US. And he found even more astonishing variations, 17-fold variation in tonsillectomy rates, six-fold variation in hysterectomy, four-fold in prostatectomy, and so on. But Wenberg went further than that. He really tried to explain uh, why these variations were occurring. So he looked at them in relation to all sorts of different measures um, and concluded that nothing really could explain them other than professional uncertainty and the kind of practice styles that doctors chose to adopt. Um, and he noticed there were sort of clusters of, of um, uh, similar rates in certain areas, so suggesting there was some, something in medical culture that somehow or other produced a surgical rate. Now, he and colleagues, including Clint McPherson in Oxford, went on to study these small area variations in different countries <coughs> and found, very interestingly, that there were patterns of variation that, uh, that seemed to apply to particular procedures. So some procedures were more variable uh, than others, whether you looked at it in Norway or England or in the US. Um, and those countries themselves had very different underlying rates. So um, a puzzle. Um, and for quite a long time, the research focused very much <coughs> on what is the right rate can we, by using epidemiological methods or by reviewing the research evidence on effectiveness, actually determine how many hysterectomies or tonsillectomies or whatever um, <coughs> should uh, be performed in a particular population? Um, and, of course, it wasn't just elective surgery. They went on to look at um, all sorts of other medical procedures um, and found similar variations. The conclusion really was that uh, it is very difficult to determine using traditional criteria, what the right rate should be. Um, in order to, to get more people thinking about this issue, Jack Wenberg um, developed what's called the Dartmouth Atlas of Variation. Um, it's now, it's still available, it's still um, based in, it's called Dartmouth because he was in Dartmouth Medical School um, in New Hampshire. And um, it's now a web-based tool, and you can go and look at it, and you can produce maps of the distribution of all sorts of um, procedures. This happens to be back surgery. And we now have, um, thanks to Muir Gray from Oxford and the Quip Right Care Programme, we now have the NHS Atlas of Variations, uh, which was published first a couple of years ago. Um, and now they're delving deeper into the, the data and producing all sorts of uh, sp disease-specific atlases of variations. You may have seen in the press coverage of 
the Atlas on Diabetes Care, which suggested that um, there are huge variations in the performance of what are known to be effective procedures for diabetes. Um, this illustration is of knee surgery, and knee surgery turns out to be very highly variable um, in around England. Now, why are these variations occurring? Um, I think the only way to really get your head around this is to consider the different types of medical care, if you like, to, to group um, all those things into, firstly, proven effective care. There is, we, we now have um, a lot of research evidence which shows that some procedures or some treatments are more effective than others. And there are some things where it's not only absolutely clear that uh, what the right thing to do is, but also um, most patients, if offered this right thing, would agree that they want somebody to just take the decision and go and do it. And an example of that is uh, surgical repair of fractured hip. You can re repair fractured hips. Um, almost anybody who has a fractured hip will want their hip repaired, um, and so they want it done as quickly and as effectively as possible. Not much uncertainty there. But at the other end of the spectrum, there's an awful lot that happens every day in medical care where there is a huge amount of uncertainty. Um, and sometimes that's because uh, there is really very little evidence. And interestingly, um, many of the kind of procedural issues um, this can be said of. So, for example, um, while most doctors will know what, what tests to order, actually, w at what point you order the test may be uh, not supported by research when to admit a patient to hospital, how long the patient should stay in hospital, all those kinds of things. We actually have very little hard evidence from randomized controlled trials to um, determine practice in those areas. So in those situations, what happens is, is that practice builds on experience. Um, it, and that can vary very much over time. When I had my first um, baby, uh, I had to stay in the maternity hospital for seven years. Seven, sorry. Not quite as bad. Seven days. Seven days was the rule. Everybody, I think, having their first baby stayed in hospital for seven days. Um, and indeed, uh, I also had to put the baby in a nursery, and I was only allowed to feed her uh, by the clock every four hours. And if the babies were all screaming, as it often was the case, uh, we were not allowed to uh, go to them until they unlocked the door of the nursery because the clock said it was 10 o'clock or whatever. Now, those that has changed dramatically, of course. Uh, my daughter's now 36 or something, and, and you know people stay in hospital for hardly any time at all now. Um, but that was standard practice then. Now, there's another um, type of medical care, which is called preference-sensitive care. And that is where um, there would undoubtedly be some scientific evidence, but it may not be sufficient to uh, entirely determine what practice should be, or where there is, but it shows there's a very close call between the benefits and risks, or there are a number of different ways of treating this particular problem. And in those cases, um, there is a very strong case, and I'm going to try and make that to you, uh, that not only must the clinician use the best evidence, but actually they must communicate that to patients and engage patients in the decision-making process. And an example is, is surgical treatment for urinary problems, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. 
And the other area, which is probably the largest and most important area of medical practice um, in, in, uh, at the moment, is treating people with long-term conditions. And in many cases, people with long-term conditions need careful monitoring, they need treatments that uh, hopefully are evidence-based, but they also have a lot to do themselves. They may well be, um, uh, need to make behavioural changes. So the decision-maker in those cases it, it is very much the patient. It is very important that the patient is involved in the process. Now, putting together all these sources of practice variation, as, as Wenberg and his colleagues um, and other researchers, including me a bit, have done, um, has led us to the position where we um, feel that there are some sources of variation that we can label as unwarranted, and some sources of variation that are warranted. So it's not that all care needs to be absolutely uniformly performed at the same rate everywhere, but uh, you need to look at what is, derive, what is um, influencing the rates. So the kinds of unwarranted variations would be those that are due to you know, different resources in different areas, uh, those that are due to insufficient evidence or to clinicians ignoring the evidence or interpreting it wrongly or taking a very parochial, uh, specialty-focused look, not recognising that many patients have multiple problems that span specialties, or indeed to unfounded enthusiasm for the latest gizmo, laser treatment, or whatever it is, uh, which is quite a common phenomenon, um, uh, often in the absence of evidence, or to poor communication and people not really understanding what the evidence is or indeed what the problem is. Those are unwarranted sources of variation. But warranted sources of variation are where the patient has been involved and genuinely has chosen something different based on uh, the provision of good information. The patient may have different attitudes, uh, values and so on, and the treatment has been specially tailored to match their needs. And when you actually look across the piece, you find that actually most medical decisions lie in this middle zone of complexity. Um, there are some things where it's very clear, the fractured hip, if you like, where there's a great deal of control, it's known what sh should be done, and, and most people would agree. But in many other areas, uh, we're dealing with huge complexity. And why won't that move? Oh, sorry, I forgot about this. Um, but patients faced with all of this um, are... Um, often very confused. They have rather concrete questions, and I've put some of these examples, I won't go through them, but um, the kinds of things that patients want answers to, and they expect fairly um, definite answers. But in order to answer those questions, they need to know a whole lot more information. They need to know about the alternative treatments that they face. They need to know whether the treatment that's being recommended really will tackle the symptoms that they consulted for. They need to know about the benefits and harms. They need to know about the natural history of the disease. That's not usually how they'd put it, but they want to know, is uh, treatment essential? Um, how long will it take me to recover? What's the impact on my quality of life? And indeed, what can I do to help myself? Now, I, I used to um, run the Picker Institute, which does the national patient surveys for uh, the Care Quality Commission, among other things. 
And um, from the, the beginning of the National Sur Survey Programme in 2002, um, we inserted a question about, um, and I can never remember the exact wor wording of the question, but it was something like, were you involved as much as you wanted to be in decisions about your care? This is data from the inpatient survey. And what you can see is that from 2002 onwards, um, about half, just under half of all patients say no in answer to that question. They were not as involved as they wanted to be. You can also see that despite this being a period where we've had umpteen policy documents saying patients should be more involved and so on, those figures haven't moved at all. Um, it's been absolutely static. And that's not true of many other aspects of the patient surveys. So there appears to be a quite a large unmet demand for information and involvement. When you ask doctors, as, as doctors.net.uk did, um, whether they think this is an important issue for their patients, the vast majority don't think it is. Um, so there is a, quite a mismatch between what doctors believe patients want and what patients say, at least in surveys and indeed in other types of studies, say they want. Um, and that can be summarised as the clinical decision problem. And the clinical decision problem is when you have patients who are unaware of uh, the treatment or management options that they might uh, like to consider and the likely outcomes of those. And you have clinicians who are unaware of patients' circumstances and preferences. When you have those two uh, features in place, then what you have is poor decision quality, a problem. Now, when you ask patients um, who should make the decisions, um, this is from a study that we did in, in eight countries, and it's very, many other studies have found a very, very similar pattern. What you find is that about 25%, about a quarter, say, well, the doctor should. That's the doctor's job. The doctor should make the decisions. Another quarter say, well, it's not my job. I think I should make the decisions. And the majority, half, over half, uh, say that they think those decisions uh, should be shared. So we've got about 75% of patients who are wanting and believing that they should have a role in decision making. So that's why this, this concept of shared decision making, which is now very much being publicised, uh, was developed. And, and a definition of it for you, a process in which clinicians and patients work together to select tests, treatments, management or support packages based on clinical evidence and the patient's informed preferences. The, the basic idea of shared decision making is that you've got two sources of expertise in any clinical decision. The clinician is expert in things like diagnosis, prognosis, understanding the causes of the disease, the treatment options and outcomes, or at least we hope they are. But the patient has another set of expertise which is equally important. The patient and only the patient knows what it's like to experience the illness in their particular social circumstances. They and only they know about their attitude to risk, their values and their preferences. To, to, so to make a good shared decision you've really got to bring both of those sources of expertise together. And in order to do that it requires quite a lot of the clinician. The <coughs> clinician needs to help the patient. The pa clinician has got to inform the patient about their options it's got, and has got to help the patient to clarify their particular problem, their treatment goals, uh, to identify the 
or the range of solutions, which might include no treatment, um, to give the information and then check that they've understood it, to help them to express their preferences, what might make sense for them in their situation, often to motivate and encourage them if, if part of that package involves, for example, some kind of behaviour change, to ensure that the, whatever they jointly agree is implemented um, and provide support as necessary, and then to <coughs> monitor outcomes. Now, um, if you say this to GPs, they'll immediately say, well, you know, we have 10-minute consultations. How can we possibly achieve all that in a 10-minute consultation? Well, the good news is there is now some support uh, for the process uh, in the form of patient decision aids. Um, and patient decision aids, I'll, I'll describe them uh, uh, in a minute, but essentially they're, a, they're a, a source of information and decision support that can be prescribed, if you like, by the clinician. They match clinical guidelines. All, all clinicians are very used to clinical guidelines, and indeed many are drowning under huge numbers of them. Um, patient decision aids differ from clinical guidelines in that they're meant for the patient, primarily, um, but for use with the doctor, whereas guidelines, clinical guidelines are intended for doctors. Both are based on uh, a good overview of <coughs> evidence. Both describe the likelihood of various outcomes. Both outline uncertainties, what we don't know from research as well as what we do. The difference is that clinical guidelines tend to make recommendations. They tend to say, in this situation, you should do such and such whereas patient decision aids don't make recommendations because the recommendation bit is, is really has got to be involving the patient. So they stop at, at setting out the options and the evidence. Um, and, of course, they assume that the patient's going to be involved in the decision, whereas the guideline assumes that only the doctor is the decision maker. So they usually include, and there are a whole variety of them, they're sometimes just simple leaflets, they're sometimes um, increasingly web-based tools um, or um, uh, computer programs or there are all sorts of different forms they can take, but essentially they include information about all these things. Here's an example of a, a section of a patient decision aid. This is a decision aid about uh, breast cancer. Uh, for women who need to decide whether they, they, I mean, they've already had a diagnosis of breast cancer, they need to decide whether they want uh, lumpectomy and radiotherapy or whether they want um, a, a mastectomy. And this is an interesting example because it used to be assumed that um, since lumpectomy plus radiotherapy, the outcomes in terms of mortality are more or less the same, that women automatically would want that because it has a better cosmetic result. And so in some areas, there were targets set for, for um, uh, oncologists and breast surgeons to um, you know, increase their rate of lumpectomy and reduce their rate of uh, mastectomy. When uh, people started to develop this kind of decision aid and actually enabled women to express their preferences, to many people's astonishment, a pro significant proportion of women actually chose the mastectomy option. For them, the cosmetic result wasn't the key thing. Uh, they wanted the feeling that they'd, you know, got rid of the problem, and for them, for them, it was better. The outcomes are more or less the same. Uh, there is a slightly different risk of recurrence, um, so that is perfectly feasible to offer that option. And indeed, uh, when women were offered it, uh, they had, uh, they felt much more comfortable with the decision. Um, 
Now, so the key components in, in a shared decision-making program are firstly the information, the decision aid, um, the decision support, just giving information alone is never enough, so a discussion with a clinician who's um, committed to involving the patient, and then a system, and this has got to be built into the whole system, of recording the decisions that are made and for implementing them. Now, just to give you an example of how this um, can be used, this is uh, an American example. Prostatectomy rates in the US, another highly variable um, condition. And highly variable because there's a lot of options. There's lots of different ways of treating this condition. You can have surgery. Uh, you can have all sorts of uh, laser-type treatments. You can have drug treatment for it. You can, some people use plant extracts. I'm not sure that there's very much evidence in support of them. Um, and indeed, it's not a life-threatening condition. Um, just in case anybody doesn't know what uh, benign prostatic hypertrophy is, it, it basically it makes you pee a lot. Uh, only affects men um, because women don't have prostates, thank goodness. Um, but it, it makes you pee a lot. And your own situation is going to govern very much how you respond to this condition. Some men say that, you know, they've got, um, you know, they've learnt to live with it. They, when they go to the cinema, they always sit at the end of the row in case they need to go quickly. Or, and they have a nice warm ensuite bathroom, and so it's not a big deal having to get up in the uh, uh, middle of the night. Others say this is wrecking their life. It's in getting in the way of their working life. Um, when they have to get up in the middle of the night, they wake the wife and everybody else. Um, it's a nightmare. Now, those two people will have a very different attitude to the risks of the treatment. Um, they, the, the one who finds it a big burden may well um, uh, you know, be willing to take more uh, surgical risks. Now, the problem with the treatment for this condition is that, and these are the different options, uh, the most effective treatment, surgery, um, is quite effective, but um, it carries far more complications. So the risk of complications goes up with the effectiveness of the condition. So the men in this situation have trade-offs to make. And the decision aid that was developed to help them helps them to try to imagine alternative futures, to think about the trade-offs they've got to make. So they've got to think, well, how bad is this for me in my situation? And then what risks am I willing to take? Unfortunately, one of the risks of prostatectomy, which is a very effective operation otherwise, is retrograde ejaculation, uh, which um, uh, many men say is, is a pretty unpleasant or surprising thing to happen, but it does happen. It's very common complication. So you've got to help people think, well, what would it be like to have that kind of complication and how, what, is it worth it? Am I willing to make those trade-offs? Another example, this time a British example, um, a study that I was a principal investigator of, this is hysterectomy rates. The NHS Atlas shows very highly variable uh, um, procedure and a, a general consensus now, I think, among gynaecologists that patients ought to be involved in deciding whether they want to have it, particularly when it's for a benign condition such as menorrhagia. So we developed, um, we did, I did um, a review of all the evidence of the alternative treatments for this condition and then uh, developed a decision aid um, to help women understand the options that they face. And again, there are different ways of treating it. We then did a three-arm randomized controlled trial, um, normal care versus uh, the decision aid alone versus the decision aid plus a structured discussion with a research nurse to help 
uh, the women think through their options. And what that what we found, um, this is quite a large trial, about uh, 700 women involved, um, that it, the decision aid certainly helped patients understand their options. They were much more knowledgeable afterwards. But very interestingly, once they knew about the options, far from increasing demand, which is one of the concerns people often had, it actually reduced hysterectomy rates. Um, women were more satisfied, and indeed we did a cost-effectiveness um, analysis as well, and it was cost-effective. And just to, to ram that home, here are the data. Uh, this is in dollars because we published in, in JAMA, an American journal. Um, the usual care option was very considerably more uh, expensive than the uh, decision aid plus coaching, um, where, where the cost of, hist of treatment overall, and including follow-up treatment, was very considerably less which illustrated the point that other studies have shown too, is that often patients, when well-informed, are more risk-averse uh, than the clinicians who advise them, and they often want to avoid uh, treatment risks once they know about them. Now, there's a Cochrane review on all of this. There are 86 randomised trials now um, in, in the Cochrane review, which address about 35 different screening or treatment options. And they also show a fairly similar pattern. You can increase patients' knowledge. You can give them more accurate expectations or risk perceptions. They feel more comfortable with the decisions. And in some cases, uh, they are less likely to opt for the most expensive treatment. In the course of doing all this work on, on shared decision-making, um, many researchers, particularly psychologists, have done a lot of interesting work on how you communicate risk. Um, and we know more than we did. There's still an awful lot of gaps in knowledge. But we know that to communicate risk, you really need to personalise it to the individual. You need to uh, have what we call balanced framing. In other words, you need to say, you might say, you know, one out of 100 people will die with this, but 99 out of 100 will survive. You need to quantify. You do need to give people numbers, and you need to find good ways of uh, demonstrating those numbers. I'll show you some in a minute. Um, absolute risk reduction or population frequencies are much more useful, much more understandable than relative risk, which is commonly published in medical journal journals or number needed to treat. Um, at, but there are a lot of areas, and I've put them on the other side, where we really need to know more. We don't know really how much information patients want. And of course, patients are all different, so they're likely to want different uh, amounts. But what's the minimum? Um, we don't know how best to select that information. We don't know, uh, many decision aids include summary tables showing you your options side by side. We don't know the best way to present that. And most importantly for this lecture series, we don't really know what's the best way to communicate uncertainty. Here's an example of a pictograph, which um, this is for people with, um, uh, who face cardiovascular risk. Uh, they are taking, or they've been recommended to take statins and they're wondering whether it's worth it. Um, on, on the left, the, um, uh, this is the likely risk of a cardiovascular event if you don't take statins. Uh, and this is, presume, I can't remember, I, this is presumably a particular age group um, and sex group. And on the right, uh, it shows you the yellow um, thing, thing, bubbles, faces, are, are the people who... Um, uh, are taking statins and, and who will not suffer a cardiovascular risk. So that's, that's an event, that's a gain. 
Um, but of course, what the patient learns from this, if it's well explained, better than I've just done, is that um, you know, many people wouldn't have had a cardiovascular event anyway. So you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Um, but you can reduce your risk if you take statins. Here's a similar way of presenting it, but in this case, rather than grouping all the, the risks, um, this computer program sort of dots them around to try to get ram home the idea that there's a lot of uncertainty. So um, this is people with atrial fibrillation um, who may want to consider taking warfarin. Um, warfarin is an effective drug, but of course it carries the risk of a stomach bleed. So this is, shows you that you can reduce your, your risk of stroke, but increase your risk of stomach bleed. Those are the, the blue bars. <coughs> so by these means, what we're trying to do is to improve decision quality. And the next... There's a lot of work going on now in how you might measure decision quality. Um, and essentially, it focuses on these three things. The patient's knowledge. Did they, did they have the knowledge they needed to make an informed choice? And when they did make an informed choice, did that match the preferences that they'd expressed? And finally, did the clinician really involve them in the decision-making process? And there have been question <coughs> questionnaires developed to measure these things. Now... One of the reasons why I would urge you to take all this seriously is it's now very high on the policy agenda. Um, in both the US and the UK, um, shared decision-making is now embedded in President Obama's health reform bill. And that means that there is now in the States quite a concerted effort to do more research to answer some of the questions we don't know, but also to implement this, to persuade clinicians that this is a good way of proceeding. And similarly, in, um, it's one of the few welcome things in our uh, latest um, health reform. Uh, shared decision-making uh, is, is actually what, what Andrew Lansley kind of pinned his colours to that particular mask in when he said, no decision about me without me is going to be the watchword. Um, <coughs> we still have yet to see whether what he's going to do about it. Now, the politicians' motives for introducing this are, are likely to be very mixed, um, on the one hand, they will be aware that many patients are saying they want more involvement. Uh, they will also be aware that this may be one way in which you can actually manage demand and reduce costs. Now, we don't know at the, at the sort of national level whether that's a likely effect, but that may well be why um, they're interested. We now have an NHS constitution which also enshrines patients' rights to involvement. So that's another reason why we need to uh, get better at doing it because patients have been told they, they should expect it. Not just by the constitution but also by um, the General Medical Council whose good medical practice uh, really enjoins doctors to, to, to behave in this way. So there are various barriers that are going to have to be overcome if, this really, if this, these policy aspirations really are going to be put into, into practice. Um, a, an obvious problem is time uh, in very busy clinical practice. Um, it, interestingly, the trials that have measured this, and not many have, have found that actually if you organise it well, it doesn't actually take much more time. The information-giving part can be done at home. You don't have, you know, you, you look at it, look at the decision aid somewhere else and then come back for another discussion with the doctor. It doesn't need to take more time. But nevertheless, it's a very real barrier in the eyes of many very busy clinicians. Also, that it, it will involve a change to our systems, which are often quite inflexible. Um, 
And uh, you know, anybody who, who tries to change clinical practice very quickly runs up against a million one reasons why current practice won't change. But the biggest cha change that needs to happen really is to the clinical culture. Um, unless doctors and nurses want to have these kinds of different type of consultations, uh, then uh, the, uh, the aspirations of the politicians will never be applied. So uh, we, in thinking about policy, there, there's an, going to be a need to think about incentives. What, what incentives are there for people to work in this way? What are the funding models going to be? What kind of training is going to be put into place? Um, how do you overcome the barriers? I mentioned that clinical guidelines make recommendations and imply that the doctor is the only decision maker. You know, can those change? Because they certainly get in the way at the moment. And also we're going to need to crack the whole issue of how you measure decision quality and, and so that we can monitor performance. So, um, in summary, what I've been trying to persuade you of uh, this evening is that uncertainty is as ubiquitous in medical care as it is in climate change or any of the other areas, um, that patients' preferences do matter if you want to make good clinical decisions, um, and therefore we have to find a way of informing and involving them. And in that, the really tricky part is things like how do you communicate risk to people who are not educated in, in you know, mathematical probability. Um, even many doctors find risk hard to grasp. Um, so we have to do more work to find good, clear ways of doing that. But ultimately what I hope I've persuaded you is that this, this uh, drive to improve the quality of medical decisions has to be absolutely fundamental. If we care about public health systems, if we want them to continue, then we have to make sure that the care people get is what they want and need and not what they don't want or wouldn't have wanted if they'd been given proper information. Thank you very much. <laughs>